watching all movies with Rebecca and Jason. Are you gonna love them or hate them? Here, Here comes, comes the binge. binge. Hey everybody, welcome to The Binge, in which a couple of homos review the latest movie theater releases. I am Jason Leroy. And I'm Rebecca Olarte, and today we have a very special episode. We're counting down our favorite movies of 2018. Uh, Jason and I are both going to reveal, reveal... Uh, our top five, and then maybe some we didn't like as much. Surprise. We didn't like them all. No. Um, Jason, this year, uh, you know, you wrote this question, so you shouldn't be surprised that I'm asking it. Um, but I'm interested to know why you phrased it this way. Uh, you want to talk about what is your rose and what is your thorn? Is that like a flowery way of saying best of uh, year for you personally? You know, it's just a more interesting way of saying like what was good and what was bad. Mm-hmm, <laughs> and mm-hmm. also... I learned it from Housewives. Okay, I was going to say, that's what I yeah. was getting at, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I would say that my rose, uh, well, certainly one thing that comes to mind, speaking of Housewives, is seeing no fewer than three Real Housewives concerts this year. Uh, concerts? Yes. The Countess Luann twice and Erica Jane once. Um, you know, going into this year, I had not seen a single one in person. Uh, so in that way alone... Uh, 2018 was a threefold increase over my entire <laughs> life up until 2018. Wait, so this is this your rose or your thorn? This is my rose. Okay, this is my thorn. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and, you know, of course, getting to travel with Scott, mm. going to France, Italy, and England with him was real nice. So that was also quite a rose. And perhaps the biggest rose of all was the Democrats taking control of the House. Mm. Um, Although that also leads into my first thorn, which is Armageddon. Oh, God. (laughs) Things are so bad. (laughs) He's unchecked. He's desperate. He's going to do anything he wants to now. He's terrified. Oh, oh, things are rough. Things are rough. We're at a a partial government shutdown at this point. Uh, Why is it only partial? Um, I think there's some that are like, required to stay open no matter what Mm, so mm. i guess if you're like part of the shutdown then it's like well you don't really matter (laughs) you're not essential (laughs) to like day-to-day life so you can go ahead and stop uh but uh yeah scott was like oh god i hope the tsa doesn't close down uh which they you um, that would be right and and trump would do that he'd be like listen no one flies anywhere until i get this wall that yeah yeah so fortunately that did not happen the tsa are required to stay open at least yeah. for now. I don't know if there's like, we've only ever known like tier one shutdown. <laughs> I don't know if we say shutdown long enough that there's like a tier two that opens up and then right. suddenly like other agencies start to shut down. I mean, that would only really have the impact if it were during the holidays. I mean, I guess it still has a huge impact on, on yes. so many Since things. Since we know people but... only travel during the holidays. <laughs> <laughs> but like that would be the one where if they, if, if Democrats kind of stuck to it, where it would be impossible for him to not have negative effects. Like, as in terms of his popularity rating, which I don't know if that's still a thing <laughs> that exists, but like who would not, I don't know. I guess it depends on how you spin it, but who would, who would still support the president that like, di- you know, destroyed holiday travel? His base. Yeah. I guess they don't travel, right? <laughs> yeah, like, as long as true. I can get from this, uh, right, from this, uh, I don't even want to, I don't want to stereotype. <laughs> You're like, well, I'm going to go ahead people. and back that right back up. Yeah, but but yeah. you all know what she was about to say. You all know. Uh, so that is certainly a thorn. Um, we have entered a period that feels in some many ways like perhaps the scariest time yet uh, because he's never been uh, 
more uh, on the warpath. He's never felt more in danger. He's never felt more threatened. And so now he's in a corner and he's lashing out. Mm -hmm. And that's part of having, you know, the thing of having a president who has the psychology of a cartoon villain (laughs) is, you know, we always know what's next. And right now he's real scared. And that's scary for all of us. Mm -hmm. Uh, And hopefully by the time this episode makes its way into the world, maybe things will be better or maybe they'll be much worse. Hard to say that is a thorn for me for sure. And uh, I would say another thorn would be the closing of my beloved Knob Hill Adult Theater. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of rich, intense, lengthy personal history for me there. And, uh, you know, just one more sort of light on the San Francisco horizon of yesteryear dimming mm-hmm. as we continue uh, on to the city's transformation. So that was a bummer. Uh, but all things considered, it's the end 2018 and we're still here. We are, yeah. And uh, there have been many times where we have been unsure about that. So, yeah, yeah. still going. Um, which I think leads me to my rose, which is um, kind of just seeing the resilience in people and um, society. You know, one of the, the bigger thorns was hearing about all of the uh, uh, tragic uh, immigration stories um, of what's happening to people at uh, who are trying to get into our country for asylum. Um, but then seeing, you know, how people kind of went through and were able to raise so much money and use, uh, you know, their Facebook for good and, and be able to, to get uh, millions of dollars uh, for races uh, to be able to help. Um, and, you know, the fact that we've said so many episodes, like, who knows if we'll be... I think last year we said something at this time that was like, um, if we're still allowed to have a podcast, they're still allowed to speak. <laughs> and I mean, not to take that for granted and not to know that it will be the same next year, but, um, you know, being able to see life go on and people kind of kind of bounce back. Um, and, and like you said, the, uh, the Democrats taking the House and, and all of the uh, diverse and, and interesting voices that have been added to our government. And, you know, it's not going to be easy for them, but uh, I'm excited that they're, that they're there. Um, a, another rose is, uh, that's it. Okay. So, uh, it's a single rose, the rose ceremony. Uh, <laughs> did you want to tell people if they don't know what Racies is, what it is? Oh, yes. Um, so it, it's a, an organization that raises money for, uh, a, like, a legal services for people who are having a difficulty, uh, uh, at the border who are being detained, uh, the families being separated. It's an organization based in Texas, um, where is, which is, um, if you, you know, still, still taking money. Yes. Uh, it's R-A-I-C-E-S, um, if you want to look it up. Great cause. Great cause. Um, thorns? Uh, uh, what else? I mean, this has been a, a nuts year for me personally um, in terms of, uh, you know, we may have, there were a lot of episodes we didn't end up recording, um, <laughs> movies I didn't end up seeing. Um, and I guess, you know, another rose is, you know, just having you be very understanding uh, and, and patient no. um, as I, you know, Sometimes with warning and sometimes without, wasn't wasn't able to hold up uh, my obligations as a co-host and as a friend. Um, but you have been super cool and supportive through it all, and I really appreciate that. So, oh, um, that's sweet. so well, thank you. Well, you know, at the end of the day, none of us are getting paid for this. That's so. true. <laughs> <laughs> it ends up just being a drain on our resources, both uh, time and financially. It's a passion project, guys. Um, speaking of passion project, have you uh, checked your email uh, in the last couple of minutes, by any chance? <laughs> I don't think so. Why? Uh, check your personal email. See if you have anything. Okay. <laughs> Uh, it's my is, resignation letter. This is 
<laughs> you don't have anything? No. No? You have, it hasn't come through? No. Did he send me something? Um, yeah, I guess not. Uh, <laughs> I, well, it should be coming soon then, hopefully. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Anyway, I got your subscription to Vulture. Oh, you did? So you shut your goddamn mouth, you cheap gay asshole. Did you really do that? Yes. Oh, my God. It's like the whole New York Magazine uh, Vulture subscription things that you can stop should trying I, to open everybody's computer. Should so I buy launch. you one? No, I'm okay. <laughs> Thank you. But let me know if you don't get that email. Um, because they, they keep sending them to me saying thank you for subscribing, but uh, it should be you. That is so nice. You're welcome. Oh, my God. That's so thoughtful. Hopefully you can read them all without stressing out every day. I have been finding new browsers to download <laughs> to maximize. I mean, that explains the uh, sign-in warning you got. <laughs> right. Are you using like weird Russian browsers that are... Scraping all your personal information. I got to read my recaps. <laughs> <laughs> you know, whatever it takes. By hook or by crook, I'm going to read those recaps. I don't know that, what would happen to our show if you weren't able to steal your reviews from Vulture. Yeah, so. no, it's true. Um, that is so kind and thoughtful of you. <laughs> Thank you. That's very You're sweet. Welcome. I got you nothing. <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> I'll buy you some drinks after this. I'll buy you $60 worth of drinks if that's, <laughs> if that's the annual Vulture subscription cost. Uh, should we get to the movies? Oh, am I going first? You're going first. Let's okay. do it. Um, okay, so number one, did you do these in alphabetical order? In I our did. List? Okay, I, I did. That makes sense because at this point, ranking it even further just doesn't really make any sense. Yeah. Um, the first movie uh, alphabetically that I picked for um, one of my top five is Blockers. Um, that's the movie that came out in springtime. Spring, and, and I hadn't seen it at the time. I actually just saw it this past week, uh, past two weeks. Uh, Jason had gave it a glowing review at the time. Um, it's the story of three parents um, who discover on prom night that their three daughters are making a sex pact. And their reaction is to chase them down all through the night and try to prevent it from happening. And it's a wild ride. It's a lot of uh, physical humor. What do you have? We have John Cena. We have, uh, uh, I keep wanting to say Amy Mann. We have <laughs> Leslie Mann and uh, Ike Barinholtz are the parents. Um, this movie is hilarious and it's always great to be able to enjoy a comedy that is, you know, about sex and about, uh, you know, drinking and it's still incredibly progressive and you don't have to worry about everything. You know, there's so many comedies that kind of get into raunchy care uh, categories and spaces where you're like, oh, something regressive, like, ah, like it just feels bad. And it's, it's such a nice delight to be able to enjoy an entire movie and uh, and not feel that way. Um, at the time, Jason, what was, I'm trying to remember what your, that was a big part of your feedback, was mm -hmm. kind of how aware it is and how respectful of women and, and their sexuality. Yeah, yeah, uh, it is it is female directed. The director is Kay Cannon, uh, who previously, it's her directorial debut. Mm. Uh, she previously uh, is best known as a uh, writer. She wrote the Pitch Perfect movies mm. and she was a writer on 30 Rock. Uh, Amazing. So all, all roads lead to 30 Rock always. <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, I mean, I thought that it was a comedy that shows that you can be inclusive and progressive um, and still be very raunchy mm -hmm. and just laugh out loud funny. Mm -hmm. And um, and it just, I think it's a great object lesson in like, what is the joke about? Yes, yes. You know, I think Blockers is a great way of being like, the jokes are never mean mm -hmm. and they're never at the expense, they never punch down mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're never laughing at like the marginalized thing mm -mm. so uh I, and yet it's still just screamingly funny um yeah just a really good time super hilarious i mean you how can you have a, a movie with a butt chugging a college high school butt chugging scene and have it still be like really uh not rude right like yeah not at all 
John Cena's facial reactions in that scene are the best (laughs) facial reactions of any actor this year. And their chemistry is amazing, the three of them. Yes. Uh, Yeah, all three of them are perfect. Uh, The three actresses playing their teen daughters are perfect. Mm Mm-hmm. Gina Gershon is perfect. Mm-hmm, right. And uh, who is it that plays uh, the, the chef again? The the one uh, oh, yes. date of the one daughter? S- Susan Strand, Tim Robbins' son. I believe his name is Miles Robbins. Miles Robbins. Of course he's a Miles. Of course. Of course. Hey, it's me, Miles. Hilar- hilarious character as well. So yeah, Blockers. Um, it is out now. Uh, available streaming for rent. It's available digitally. Digitally. Available <laughs> digitally. Um, not an analog. <laughs> Uh, the next movie is also a comedy, more of a dark comedy than the other, um, but also physical sometimes. It's The Death of Stalin. Uh, this movie is a dark comedy that takes place in Moscow in the 50s, and uh, it's about when this moment when Joseph Stalin dies and sort of the, the, the power play and the manipulation and the terrifying hilarity of uh, his council of ministers who are trying to get power in, in that vacuum. Uh, we got to watch this one together, which was fun. Um, you know, sometimes it hit a little, some, some parts hit a little too close to home. Uh, some things, things are, we're also seeing the, the, the insane reactions of a madman in power right now. Um, but also, it, I don't know, it made me feel seen a little bit, uh, <laughs> historically seen by what was going on in this movie. Uh, you have, uh, Steve Buscemi, um, Jeffrey Tambor, who we gave a pass in this movie because you can't punish everybody for the actions of a few. Uh, you're doing this weird silent laugh thing, and I can't tell. It it makes it sound like nobody. <laughs> you don't think I'm. Stop silent laughing. <laughs> you know, Julia Roberts on mute with all those I've, teeth I've, and no sound. I've been trying to make less noise while other people are talking. I When listening to the show, I annoy myself because I'm always like, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh-huh. I'm like loudly active listening. I'm just oh. like, that's annoying. Um, it's not. It actually makes you feel weird that you're not doing it. And I was like, should I keep talking? I or? don't think it's. I don't think it's fun <laughs> to listen to. You don't think? No, I think that when I'm like, I think that our podcasts are when like one person talks at a time. Hmm. Interesting. Um. I mean, it's still like you should laugh. <laughs> <laughs> it's because you just look weird <laughs> over there not laughing. I, I see. Um, Jason, what did you think of this movie? <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, I loved it. This Stalin. Uh, this this is one that for sure uh, is on my top ten, and um, and it's just it's you know written and directed by Armando Iannucci, mm. who uh, created Veep and The Thick of It All, and previously did In the Loop. You know he's a master of political comedy, political satire, and uh, yeah, no, this movie feels like entirely too appropriate for the times that we live in. Definitely. Um, but it's never like artless or hacky about it. You know, it's so sophisticated. Every performance is so perfectly bonkers. Um, so insane. And, uh, and yeah, no, this is, this is for sure one of the best comedies of the year. And, uh, and it's going to be sadly a movie that we'll probably look back on for years and be like, yep, that's how things were. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it's, it's dark. There are per- points where it is, Really upsetting, um, and they, at least they 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 inferred a very graphic, uh, violent acts, and some that do show up. And uh, but in the same time, you know, being maybe a lot of people being more close to that the reality now that we're not previously might might also feel a little um, I don't know. It might not seem so far fetched. It's not a comedy where you can forget your troubles exactly. No, um, but it is a comedy that lets you that refracts your troubles through like a satiric historical lens, and maybe makes you feel less alone, and reminds you that these things have all happened before. Definitely. And granted, they didn't always have great outcomes when they happened before, 
Um, <laughs> but, you know, adults like this have existed throughout history. Right. Um, and they don't live forever. Uh, this one is also available now um, digitally, as, as you insist on saying. <laughs> well, I don't know what's the better way to say it. You're saying on DVD because the DVDs internet. aren't a thing anymore. So it's like, yeah, it's like you can buy or, or rent it probably. There you on go. the internet? I mean, it's, like it's, in the, it's in its home window right now. <laughs> I think you could maybe still red box it. It's no, lo- no longer in theaters. Uh, the third movie on this list is not a comedy. Uh, it's First Reformed. Uh, this is also one that you saw at the time I, d- I hadn't seen until later, but I think it, part of your review was, uh, why haven't you seen this? This movie would be perfect for you. Yes. Um, and if you have ever been called a Brian by your friends. <laughs> <laughs> Brian from Family Guy. Uh, this movie is also for you. Um, in this movie, we have Ethan Hawke, uh, who plays this sick, uh, alone, sad minister in uh, a New England church, uh, one of the oldest churches in America. And he is uh, so lonely, and he's grappling with mounting despair uh, because of the world, because of the choices he's made, because of his life, and and some unexpected things happen. Uh, he's uh, he's asked for his guidance as a minister, which also that was a, a crazy thing that I sort of forgot happens in the world. Mm. And being someone who doesn't uh, have a religious identity, um, that that people do go to their their uh, local religious leaders for help, and that, what a crazy thing! It's quaint. It's quaint. <laughs> it still happens, but it's like wow, like people with like like psychological and like legal and and uh, threat threat escalations to to local uh, ministers that's nuts yeah their ministers are like therapists and lawyers combined into one that's a lot of responsibility sure is. Uh, for someone who studied <laughs> the bible in college <laughs> um yeah so we see him s- sort of uh kind of get radicalized um by someone in his community and um you know sort of what happens to people when they're left with their own thoughts and they're desperate and they want to make an impact in the world and they're questioning everything around them and you know how close it becomes uh how easy it becomes and how close it is uh to to sort of you know be pushed to 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 being more i don't know active and uh you know part of a part of a group that that might take more extreme uh solutions to world problems yes <laughs> Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Plus one. Um, no, this is another one that would be in my top ten for sure. Um, it is. It's just you know, it's written and directed by Paul Schrader, mm-hmm. who is uh, you know who was sort of a veteran filmmaker who wrote most of Scorsese's best movies: Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Last Temptation of Christ. The latter of which, while well, sort of this one is almost sort of a combination between Taxi Driver and Last Temptation of Christ. Mm, yeah, it really is. Um, and uh, and there you have it. That's all you need to know about it, really. <laughs> Uh, but no, this is, I mean, Ethan Hawke is my for sure vote for best actor of the year for this, for, for best male actor in elite performance. Um, it's the performance of his career, hands down. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you yeah, know, I mean, like, I was so intrigued to finally get your thoughts on this, because if you guys don't know from previous episodes, Rebecca tends to enjoy a story about uh, sort of, I, don't, I wouldn't say religious fanaticism, mm-hmm. um, but sort of like, you know, how would you put it? Religious fanaticism. Okay, so yeah. <laughs> so. It's so interesting to me. Yeah. Um, and this, you know, this kind of overlaps in, into a lot of things. And um, uh, first of all, I, I want to remember what you what your thoughts on the end of it were. Uh, yeah, so the ending of this movie is very polarizing. 
And, um, you know, I read a lot about Paul Schrader's um, obsession with his idea of like transcendence, transcendentalism. And, um, and I took it as sort of an example of that. I took it as sort of like, it's, it's a way uh, that we kind of see a, almost a divine intervention um, mm. for our protagonist um, in the sense that, you know, I do think that Schrader intends what happens in the last scene to be a way of sort of like God or the divine sort of giving him an out. Mm, interesting. Giving Ethan Hawke an out. Like sort of this intervention of passionate love mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. To, uh, to help temper and offset the intense darkness that he had allowed himself to become surrounded by and enveloped by. And um, and it's sort of teased about halfway through the film in a very um, psychedelic sequence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then it kind of comes home to roost um, in the finale. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it's definitely a a sequence that has left a lot of people cold Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and been like, what the fuck was that? That's how it ended. Uh, And, uh, but I mean, yeah, I, I feel like that was... Uh, yeah, I, I see kind of, I think what Trader was going for there. And I feel like that is a, a more, it's a surprisingly upbeat ending, I think, mm-hmm, you know, cause mm-hmm. like the direction it's going is a bad, bad direction. Um, so, uh, I don't know. what do you think? Um, so you read it as like, that's like sort of what you see is what happens. Yeah. I, I, I read it as a fairly, as a very literal, um, I didn't read it as like he hallucinates and mm-hmm. imagines gotcha. this thing happening. No. Uh, yeah, I sort of, I, I did as well. And, um, and I thought that it sort of reinforced what my takeaways from the, the whole movie were. And um, I think that more than religious fanaticism, this movie to me was about um, it's kind of bringing me back against thinking about how comparing Ben is back to um, Beautiful Boy. And to me, it's like a very it's a very critical view on how genders respond to things. How You know, it's like a very male response to sort of like sit in this room and, and you know, th- this is the self aggrandizing, you know, need to like write down all of your thoughts and, uh, and, and, f- and have all these feelings about the world and, and like, your inability to affect the change that you want to see. Um, your, you know, uh, the, the results of your perceived like impotence about life and how that like ends up being incredibly toxic. And I think you see that when he's originally introduced to um, the by Amanda Seyfried by uh, to her husband, who is kind of going through an issue that he has to help with. In the meantime, she's trying to like raise a family and clean up the house and do a lot of you know really um, tactical things to take care of herself in life. And then she's surrounded by these men who continue to need support and need help. And if they don't feel loved, their their responses to things are incredibly damaging to the world um, because they have these kind of like, you know, high-minded ideas about how things should be and, and their responses to like is both impactful for them personally um, and and damaging in a way that, that is that is blind to the, the effects right around them. So to me, that was kind of like the, the takeaway. Hmm. And then the end that you're that you're saying where, you know, there's this divine intervention to, to show him love is just kind of like another part of that story. Right. It's a, it's a divine intervention of femaleness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. 
um, uh, to break him out of this prison of uh, of yeah sort of like this raging toxic masculine reaction to which I mean it's a reaction to something that is very bad I mean sure. you know, part of what works about this movie for me is its condemnation of like contemporary American Christianity mm, uh, yeah, because all, yeah. of, all mm-hmm. the things it's not Ethan Hawke's character doesn't rage against things that shouldn't be raged against mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know he's raging against the economic or not the economic he's raging against the environmental death of the world mm-hmm. uh, and he is raging against um, the complicit nature of the American church in that in um in a way that they are funded by you know the ones that are funded by corporate backers mm-hmm. that have business interests that would um, you know suggest that they want to be protected from any regulation that would force them to do business differently in a way that would make the world's environment better uh so you know in the conversation i feel like there's few scenes better this year dialogue wise than the one between ethan hawk and amanda seyfried's husband when they have this debate about how can you bring someone into the world right now mm-hmm. how can you bring a child into the world because amanda seyfried's character is pregnant um knowing what we know about the world and knowing uh you know reading what we read about its future uh, environmentally mm-hmm and uh you know and these are very real things and this movie grapples with that in a way that um i think is 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 bold and is is very um sophisticated and and um audacious so and yeah just it leaves a mark it's definitely like it's a 2018 movie it really is um and also cedric cedric the entertainer his mm-hmm. name is cedric I can't remember. Can't remember. Um, but I feel it's he's made enough of a brand to be called Cedric the Entertainer. Sure. Um, does an amazing job as the uh, the head of the sort of the church that backs um, the first reformed church that Ethan Hawke is is part of. And I feel like another scene from the movie that that kind of hit back to the point that I was talking about earlier is when he uh, Cedric is is telling him like you kind of got a chill man like you're you know you're very upset but like. You know, maybe like go do some some work, and and even though uh, the the bigger church that he's a part of is, you know, we look at it critically because of their association with these certain corporations. At the same time, like you know, he, one of his suggestions is like, well, if you're so upset, why don't you go help people? Like, mm-hmm. why don't you go on kind of like a mission and like go go help folks? Because that's another way way to sort of you know, um, uh, you know, rectify what what's wrong with the world and how you can help in a, in, a, in a not damaging way. Mm-hmm. Um, but but he's so uh, you know insistent on this thing that he feels like he needs to do that ends up feeling very selfish um, because of the way he sort of uh, puts off puts off the uh, ability to uh, the options to help for this kind of like um, big blast of an impact. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean that's part of why it works so well because the movie you know there's a lot of you know it's very ambiguous mm-hmm. uh, because like neither of them are wrong right in that scene. Uh, like Ethan Hawke is very he he has identified the real culprit here. You know he is he is he's identified a link. You know to the mega church that runs his church, mm-hmm. um, and he and you know and he is like I have identified an issue, and I need to fight it. Um, but at the same time, Cedric's character is right that also rather than like these these very you know mega scale David and Goliath battles that he's imagining he's like you could also just go do some service projects right and you know go do work in the community um and you can see how either of those characters hears what the other says and thinks like you're crazy or like that's not going to change anything Mm -hmm. so yeah no i mean it's 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 yeah it's it's profound and complex it does a great job of not saying what is right or wrong and making Mm -hmm. you think about complicated uh ethical and moral issues in our world today and that's why it's on on the top list and speaking of 
gender roles and being uh, supportive and, and uh, giving. The next movie, uh, number four, is Support the Girls, which I finally got to finish. Yay! <laughs> Just a breezy five or six months later. <laughs> Pick right where you left off. Really, really, I know exactly where I left off. I did rewatch <laughs> it from the beginning. Here we have Regina Hall as uh, the general manager of a sports bar um, in a small town, uh, sports bar with curves. And uh, she is, she's, a, she's the mom. She takes care of everyone. Um, she is constantly juggling to make sure that everyone's needs are met in a very sort of extreme circumstance where, you know, you have this, this uh, as, as you wrote, sports bar with curves where, um, you know, girls are, are you know, uh, flirting with how far they can get away with, with their sexuality. Um, and still have this job with kind of a toxic uh, management environment, a very uh, uh, sexist owner, racist. racist owner. And this is a, a movie that takes place in, in one day where kind of a lot of things come to head and you see all of the things she's doing to try to, you know, it's like the, it's like a Rube Goldberg machine of, of helping her, her, her girls, uh, you know, take this from here and then use that from there and then have this person do this and like help each other out. And until she kind of is at, you know, kind of push to the end and you see her and the girls that she works with, you know, have some great moments of growth. Um, this movie felt so real. Uh, this movie is done in this weird silence looking at me thing is like really <laughs> weird. <laughs> I'm sorry. I should have cleared it with you first before just mounting a new tactic. <laughs> like I... I can't tell what to do. <laughs> when I'm nodding, I'm affirming you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Just imagine me saying, mm-hmm. Shake your head in disapproval so I know what that will look like. <laughs> oh, okay. That's a lot. There's that, a lot there. That's how you'll know. Um, I feel like I know this this person. Uh, her character is some uh, a friend of mine's mom. Hmm. Um, it's somebody that I know when I worked in retail. Uh, well, yeah, no, this is a fantastic movie. Uh, this is another one that would have been in my top ten. Uh, and I think there's just something about um, a well-done slice of life, day in the life mm. movie, that it can it can just resonate so universally. And you know, if the writing is strong enough, if the characterization is strong enough, if the acting is strong enough, and you know, and I think in this case it absolutely is. Um, and you know, it takes place in Texas, and mm. you know, at a, at a, at what apparently they're called restaurants. Um, you oh. know, Hooters and places like Hooters are, are known colloquially as restaurants and uh you know the title of the movie has a double meaning mm-hmm. uh support the girls in the way that regina's character supports her girls but also bras support the girls <laughs> and they've got to hoist them up uh, to make those tips um but there's something in sort of the episodic way that the movie follows regina as she takes on just a series of you know small tasks or conflicts or is putting out a fire or is you know dealing with an interpersonal matter dealing with a customer matter dealing with like a broken cable system for the big game like there's something profound uh about the way that uh the movie interrogates each of those situations Mm -hmm. by sort of just taking them at at face value and addressing them in realistic ways uh it feels like yeah it it feels like it's speaking to some real emotional truth about life mm-hmm. and uh and i think it does that really well with a terrific ensemble cast and you know and it's not a movie where even though it is a day in a life movie you know it is a day ultimately that's significant you mm-hmm. know significant things happen um you know there's no it doesn't turn into like 10 cloverfield lane there's not like <laughs> that would be quite an, quite an opening 
but you know, it winds up being a fairly significant day in her life. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, and she, fortunately her performance is, you know, the glue that holds the movie together and, um, and she's never been better. Regina Hall has been giving musty performances for 20 years. And, um, and this is the year that she really has seen like she's been breaking through finally. Mm. Um, I mean, she's always been good, but finally everyone's noticing and, mm-hmm. you know, and it helped that she had roles in like girls trip last year that helped kind of give her more of a platform. This year, she was also in The Hate You Give. Right. Uh, she, I mentioned you earlier, has a new Showtime series called Black Monday coming in January. So she's having a moment, and this movie was a big part of that. Yeah, this movie This movie is uh, both difficult to watch and a feel-good movie, I think, at the same time. It's just... it's Difficult because of Leah Delaria. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of tension in this movie. Like, there is a lot of tension where you're, you know, you're kind of scared for, for what's going to happen to people. Um, but, it, you know... It, it really has a, a really nice resolution where the, even the things that even though she tries to navigate each you know micro situation in a way that's like firm and fair and understanding uh you know some of her uh her problems ar- arise with the way she kind of you know people question if she is really helping everyone does she get to decide what people do with with what at one point she tries to help somebody financially but she uh, doesn't agree with the way that they're going to share their money with their partner and you know does she get to make that choice how invested is she is she too invested is she um, not giving enough to the people closest to her because she's giving so much for these girls and um, she judges some of the relationships that her girls are in and, and it kind of at the end that's you know you see that that might not be right either and so mm-hmm. she's not perfect um, even though she is incredibly uh, uh nice to watch her navigate those those conflicts i'm noticing now just thinking about it this is almost sort of like a female companion piece to first reformed Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. they're both about Mm -hmm. leaders um they're both about leaders navigating um you know just daily challenges and conflicts and interpersonal situations and kind of what you were saying about the way that ethan hawk's character has such a resolutely male uh approach to everything um this is regina hall i think does embody that female approach Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, this is kind of what's missing from ethan hawks you know sort of his cloistered severity Mm -hmm. um in first reformed whereas regina hall is like well first of all i don't have the the luxury of getting to sit back by myself you know in my like you know chambers and you know like chug booze and write in my journal and and brood about things um like i have to be out there on the floor um, the first line of defense for everything that happens. And I have to, you know, bring my you know, sort of like this performative feminine softness and maternal warmth to mm-hmm. like everything I do uh, because that's what's expected of me. And, you know, uh, and I, but meanwhile, my life could be, you know, my personal life is on fire in the backdrop, but I have to bottle that up and I have to go out there and do my job and, um, you know, with a smile and, uh, you know, and then, but we see her, that's what there's layers to that performance because mm-hmm, we see her, mm-hmm. we see the front stage self that she puts out there when she is dealing with customers, uh, and then we see the backstage self uh, when she goes to visit that employee whose choices she doesn't agree with, or mm-hmm. when she has a scene with her husband. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so you know that's part of why it's so rich. But I think the yeah these are sort of consecutive stories that are about leadership, male versus female leadership, mm-hmm. and and to a fault. Yeah, for both of them, right? And again, that 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 like I said before, that I also see that same. Uh, uh, dichotomy between Ben is back parenting and beautiful boy parenting mm-hmm. um, but it's time for my last movie speaking of women uh, women bosses lady bosses uh, widows is my new movie number five um, Viola Davis starring 
in this movie, this this uh, caper. Caper? Is that the right word? Uh, heist movie. Heist. That's yeah, it's more of a heist movie. Uh, caper is more of a Muppet. Or a uh, or food. Or food. All oh, right. Um, this is uh, a movie taking place in contemporary Chicago. Um, it has a backdrop of politics. Uh, you have crime, and you have four women who have nothing in common except the fact that they're men. They're men. They're uh, yeah, they're men. Yeah, their men were all um, uh, killed in uh, a heist gone wrong, and in order to sort of fix what's left on their plate, they they take uh, fate into their own hands and they go forward with the the next heist on their own terms. And we see binge favorite Michelle Rodriguez in this movie. That's our girl. Nails it. She's amazing, which is also hard for us to admit. <laughs> we all know she had it in her. Um, there's so much to this movie. There's so many fantastic performances. And I think we just talked about this uh, again uh, the last episode with mm-hmm. with our guest, Ashley. Um, uh, Daniel Kaluuya. Yeah, who she loves. Yes. In this film. <laughs> Uh, we have Colin uh, Colin Farrell. We have Cynthia Erivo. Mm-hmm. We have Carrie Coon. Uh, we have, did you mention Liam Neeson yet? Not even. That uh, doesn't even come to my mind when I think about this movie. <laughs> we have Elizabeth Debicki. Amazing job. Yes. Jackie Weaver. Uh, Lucas Haas. I mm-hmm. mean, this is this is a cast list a mile long, um, partially because um, I think as we mentioned in our initial review, this, start, this is adapted from a miniseries. And it does have that feel. They kind of crammed a miniseries worth of storylines and characters into a movie. And it makes the the subsequent movie incredibly dense uh, with story and character. And it may have, which doesn't make it a bad movie by any means. I still think it would have been better as a limited series. I, would have been, I just want to see more of the movie. Yeah, exactly. So, which is not a knock against the movie at all. It's just mm-hmm. a knock against the decision to make it a feature rather than stick with the original format. Mm-hmm. Uh, directed by Steve McQueen. The movie is artful as it is exciting and fun and also deep and terrifying there are enough layers uh given each character to make it understandable without it being dull so many so many loops are closed um in ways that are satisfying and this movie just feels fantastic this feels like a really fun time with the movies and this is a movie that has been entirely 100 percent shut out of awards conversations that's insane uh which really goes to show you that like they you know the the, the makers you know the tastemakers the 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 gatekeepers of this they don't do genre yeah like you know like and clearly there have been exceptions over the years uh but there needs to be something an extra certain something um you know like get out Mm. was you know a horror movie that despite being a genre movie succeeded with awards but with widows it seems like it's it's something about it has made it very easy to be dismissed entirely Mm. not even viola has made best actress shortlist for this so it's it's a it's a strange thing, and no one's really talking about the fact that Widows has been one hundred percent like blacklisted from awards conversations, hmm. and um and it seems like it it could just be because it passes muster as just uh, an appealing heist movie, uh, and they're just like, well, that's not an awards movie then. That's insane. So um and we'll see if there's any surprises waiting for us from you know from the Oscars, but mm-hmm. I think that you know this is a movie that. Certainly, when merit conversations are on Viola for lead, mm-hmm. I would say Elizabeth Debicki for supporting. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, C. McQueen for director, screenplay. Oh, it might still make adapted screenplay. I think that's the one place it could mm. still show up for C. McQueen and Gillian Flynn's screenplay. Uh, but I mean, like the editing, the cinematography, uh, everything about it is 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 top notch. So it's quite an award season puzzler that Widows has been shut out. So. That's unfortunate. 
Um, this one's also no, it's not yet available digitally, right? It's no. in that weird valley right now where you can't see it in the theaters. I think it's still in some theaters, but think? yeah, I think it's but yeah, I think it's in the valley. Um, so those are my top five. Um, my most disappointing movie of 2018 was Happy Time Murders. What a disappointment! Uh, <laughs> I mean, it was a disappointment to me, kind of from trailer times. I knew it was going to be terrible. Um, I I don't. I don't know. I never wanted an adult Muppet movie. Uh, this is like the opposite of Blockers, where you are doing something that is so crass for crassness sake. There's nothing in it that's funny. Melissa McCartney, M- Melissa McCarthy is so disappointing uh, that, I mean, at some point you have to make a decision where you're like, I'm still going to do this thing. I don't understand how contracts work, but like, how could you, how could you be on board with something that is just so rude and so unfunny has no point, um, kind of mildly racist. I, mm. This is just such a nightmare, a nightmare use of puppets. I hated this. <laughs> a nightmare use of puppets. I hate it. Yeah, I mean, I remember sitting with you um, at, I think when you and Heidi came to Scott's Dining Out for Life restaurant this past year, and I remember uh, getting a, like a breaking news alert from Hollywood Reporter or something that was like, Happy Time is basically announcing the movie. And being like, oh, Melissa McCarthy is going to star in like a hard R puppet cop movie. And I was like, I have to show this to Rebecca right now. And um, and I think even at the time you were kind of like, mm, and I'm like, what? It's mm. Melissa McCarthy and puppets. It's going to be amazing. So it's partially my fault. Uh, <laughs> this maybe was so disappointing to you. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, this was um, one of Melissa McCarthy's two very bad on funny movies that came out this year. Fortunately, there's a third one that I'll be talking about a bit later. But um, but yeah, this is, I remember you and I were in agreement that if we were not seeing it to review it, we would have walked out. Yeah. And not because yeah. we were so offended, because we weren't. Uh, it was because we were just like, this is unfunny. This is painfully unfunny. This is, this is one of those moments where you really feel like you're watching something that is not worth the time that you're giving it to watch it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I don't place that high of a premium on my time. <laughs> but Happy Time Murder is pushed over the edge. Yeah, what a what a nightmare. Avoid that one at all costs. Um, so that's it for me. Um, Jason, uh, time for me to silently stare at you while you present your top five movies of 2018. So alphabetically speaking, the first movie that I chose to include in my top five list, and also I, um, I made this list after Rebecca had settled on hers, and I decided to not have any overlap. Mm so that we can spotlight the most number of movies possible that we love this year. Uh, so, because there were a few Rebecca's, I think probably Death of Stalin and First Reform certainly posed quite a quite a chance and, and support the girls, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, here are my five, starting off with Can You Ever Forgive Me? This is a movie that when I first saw it at Tifting, I, uh, I liked it a lot. But I think, you know, seeing it in the glut of, you know, whatever other five movies I saw that day, mm. um, you know, it kind of muted its effect a little bit, um, you know, because it's a really relatively it's a small story. And, um, you know, it, it's it's two primary characters. Uh, you know, it's a true story. Uh, the character is played by Melissa McCarthy and Richard E. Grant. Uh, you know, these are both, uh, you know, these are these are outsider misfit characters. Uh, they're both um, they both have substance issues. Uh, they're misanthropic to varying degrees. And, um, you know, I think the whole story kind of, I, I, I liked, but did not love it. I then watched it a second time recently. 
And seeing it outside of that context, uh, I flipped. I just flipped for mm. it. Uh, I think it's such an incredible story. I already, you know, trumpeted about how much I loved its story of sort of middle age misfit queer friendship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, <laughs> and here we are. And here, <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, it's like go with what you know. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, it captures a time and a place in New York in 1991. Not that I was there. But I certainly like to imagine what it was like then. And I've seen a lot of people um, who sort of were more active in New York at that time weigh in about like how kind of shook they are watching this movie, how much it captures that time. Uh, it's directed by uh, Marielle Heller, who previously mm. made The Diary of a Teenage Girl, which is one of my favorite movies mm-hmm. of the last decade, uh, with a script co-written by Nicole Holoff Center, who is one of the all-time great writer-directors. Um, and, uh, you know, the story... As I mentioned, True Story is about a woman named Lee Israel, uh, who uh, was a biographer, a fairly accomplished biographer, who nonetheless uh, was fallen out of, um, had fallen out of commercial favor, uh, could no longer um, afford to live based on her writing, and so um, took up a criminal pursuit of forging celebrity correspondence for, um, for high mm-hmm. roller collectors and found a surprising amount of satisfaction in the in the fact that she was able to write in a way that convincingly felt like the voices of the greatest wittiest writers of all time Dorothy Parker uh Cole Porter uh this and she feels pride in that and uh and I think that it's a kind of it's just such a winningly subversive idea that you know like you know what like yeah take pride in what you're good at even if everyone tells you it's a bad thing <laughs> take some pride in that uh, Melissa McCarthy and Richard Grant give two of the best performances of the year in this movie uh, and uh, and it's just yeah I think that you know when I look at this list in general if I, when I stand back and look at it from you know from a more macro point of view you know I think that what we both love are characters and writing that's you know and dialogue and these are the things that we're looking for and I think Can You Forgive Me has all of that. I think the characters and the dialogue is it's it's outstanding. It's also a story that's surprisingly suspenseful. Mm-hmm. Um, when I did watch it again recently with some friends, uh, there there were there were screams of of, of shock and disbelief. What? Um, as can... um, as as the um, as we start to realize that the stakes. Uh, for Lee's crimes are considerably higher mm-hmm. than any person would reasonably think. <laughs> uh, so uh, this is, yeah, this is a film that I think is just a real true gem. Uh, another, yeah, two for two from Mario Heller. Her next film is the Mr. Rogers film starring Tom Hanks. Oh. Yes. Uh, and we will see how that one turns out. That's her first real big leagues uh, go at it. Mm. But uh, but yeah, I mean, so far she has has, has just stunned. So um, and, and this is a film that you enjoyed as well. Definitely. She is amazing at, at putting things in a time and place without it being obvious. It feels very much of an era. And so did um, Diary of a Teenage Girl mm-hmm. um, that, you know, it doesn't feel like this is a movie about you know, the seventies. This is a movie about the nineties. You just feel like you're deep in, in the world, um, in that time. And, and yeah, this movie is an interesting way of, of, of a woman who, uh, is uncompromising and dedicated to what she thinks, like what she thinks needs to be made. 
um, and nobody wants to read the book she wants to write. And she finds a way to, to do what she wants to do and make money from it um, and, and, and have the voice she wants to have, even though it's highly illegal and, uh, and, and not, not the world of, of top-selling novels that she thought it would be. Yeah. Um, yeah, this movie was uh, a lot of fun. And um, it, she, Melissa McCarthy is hilarious. There is a very triggering cat death scene. Uh, mm-hmm. We can't not... Um, warn our audience about you can't not <laughs> i mean i would feel very responsible right. do unto others right <laughs> golden rule exactly i think you you told me as i was waiting for the movie to start because well, it starts y- off with you know still of, the, of a cat <laughs> right whenever it's so prominent you have that to was, ask that was an alarming what's that message to get when i realized <laughs> i had not warned you uh, yeah this movie is fantastic um and just about redeeming enough from happy time murders from Melissa McCarthy. <laughs> yes. what was the other one it was the other one was life of the party life of the party right. yeah uh yeah and i i remember uh i think you went on a tear in this review about once again bring up one of your favorite punching bags uh for movies that you like to point to that you did not enjoy and that movie is landline uh, yes <laughs> i can't let it go and i, I don't know let it go did you so you know and i i did a you know i think the only real like r- major interview i did this year was with uh, Brady Corbett, the writer-director of Vox Lux, which is a movie mm. that I nearly put in my top five. Um, and um, and I don't know if you had a chance to read it, but he makes a reference to landlines in a way that I that I thought you would appreciate. Mm, because this he, is a trick. No, I haven't read it. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's, uh, he's talking about how he, you know, because Vox Lux begins in 1999, and he was talking about how he wanted to, you know, he didn't want to have there be things that were too... Um, too overtly of the time mm-hmm. um and then he specifically says he's like for instance i didn't want there to be just a landline to be like haha let's laugh at a landline because mm-hmm. i don't think that's funny and uh, and i was like see <laughs> i mean too. the beginning of Vox peas and Lux. carrots you two would get along <laughs> i also wasn't sure what time it was and it slowly developed and i think that was uh that was well executed yeah you're like, I'll give it that one thing. I, mean, I wasn't, a f- I wasn't a big fan of it, but I did that. I did appreciate that. Yes. Uh, Can you ever forgive me? I believe is also in the valley between theaters and uh, its home window right now. Uh, but uh, but yeah, it's one that I loved. The second film on my top five list is Eighth Grade. This is the writing and directing debut of Bo Burnham. Uh, this is uh, a film that came out of the gate strong at Sundance this year and has uh, and has managed to stick around for awards talk. Mm. It is uh, it's been nominated for a number of Spirit Awards. It's been nominated uh, at the Golden Globes. Uh, going into the Oscars, it seems like its best chance of recognition is original screenplay nomination for Bo Burnham, which it seems possible. It seems like it's wow. within the grasp of uh, of this, and uh, and that would be. A really outstanding thing to see happen uh you know so we have here just a story of uh kaylee uh intervated teenage girl trying to survive the last week of her disastrous eighth grade year before heading off to high school and uh you know this is another example sort of similar to support the girls of um you know it's not a day it's a week uh but just the way that you, when you do a slice of life story that zeroes in with specificity on a character no matter how unremarkable if anything especially when they're unremarkable mm-hmm. kayla is an unremarkable girl <laughs> way to give uh, shade 
<laughs> and that's no like she's a real snooze she's not cute at all <laughs> well and i think that's sort of the point of the movie is mm-hmm. the way the character is written and the way the character is cast and the mm-hmm. way the character is performed you know she's not meant to be a cool girl she's not meant to be a girl that you know will pull your focus mm-hmm. uh, she's meant to be sort of like a face in the crowd um and and then bo burnham singles in on that face in the crowd and it's like well let's tell her story let's not tell the story of like you know queen bee mm-hmm. or let's not tell the story of like some huge cool girl misanthrope like let's just tell the story of of a girl in the middle um who is just trying to go along to get along and um at this point in time where her you know she's trying to develop her personality as an individual uh we see her just heartbreakingly endearing attempts to cultivate a youtube following <laughs> it's precious <laughs> and uh gucci. <laughs> gucci and uh and we see her just navigating the things that um you know that we all navigate at that age and especially the girls navigate at that age uh we see her uh figuring out how to talk to boys we see her maybe not realizing when she's being exploited by boys mm. uh we see her um in one especially hard-hitting scene uh be very aggressively exploited by a boy um uh in a scene that is i think a really teachable moment for uh for kids to watch um to show girls like this is boys will try to gaslight you into thinking that they're doing you a favor right uh and that you should be flattered and that you need to do this thing that they're pressuring you into to show you just what that pressure looks like and all and to show boys like this behavior right here is unacceptable Mm -hmm. this is predatory don't do this um and it's it's just presented in such a humane matter of fact way uh we have a this is a tremendous father-daughter story it really is uh josh hamilton plays so elsie fisher plays kayla and um and this is just a breakthrough performance for her uh josh hamilton plays her father uh in a performance that i would love to still see make the supporting actor cut Mm. um there is a it's just it's just a just a crushingly sort of just intimate uh thoughtful like lived in relationship um that we see between the two of them uh, we see his his just bewilderment um as she starts to act out in certain ways that he is not yet accustomed to mm-hmm. and uh you know i mean it definitely takes you right back into the absolute horror show that is puberty and you know i know rebecca that's not your favorite thing to see it's not, it's um not. depicted in movies and um you know i know that you all know this. Rebecca is an adult woman. Uh, <laughs> she is not a teenager. I am not. And she does not like to be reminded of what being a teenager was like. Um, and uh, you you said that you did not love this. when you, you finally watched this within the last week or so, and you weren't nuts for it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not my, you know, in the way where you would say, first reformed, you should definitely watch that. Right. Uh, this, is, this is not that movie. Um, but that said, this movie, I couldn't agree with everything you, everything you said more um it's an amazing father-daughter movie um it is so it's so painful yet so accurate um you know the movie itself doesn't exploit the characters um it's it's thoughtful in a way that it's you would almost believe that it was written by like a teenage girl mm-hmm. um you know maybe like just out of you know just out of uh uh, out of her diary right. um, and that it's yeah written and directed by an adult man is, <laughs> is really uh, impressive and there's no more chilling disturbing scene in any movie this year than the pool party scene oh yeah no. I mean hereditary has nothing on that no it really doesn't <laughs> take that Tony Collette <laughs> I'd like to see you perform that scene yeah there's there's nothing scarier than um, being 
rejected and being a teenager and interacting with other t- teenagers and that like the sincerity that's still like that, that one foot in youth of being able to say like oh I'm gonna make a YouTube channel and it's gonna be fun but then at the brink of being able of realizing that like not everyone loves you or wants to see that and like people are it's it's hard yes and this is definitely one more movie that reassures olds like rebecca and myself that we are lucky to have not grown up with social media oh my god thank god Woof. Woof. yeesh that sounds like a nightmare thoughts and prayers <laughs> for to, our youth to the younger generations uh so yeah eighth grade this is i mean from the first time i saw it i knew it was going to be top five for me and it's it's been unshaken from that spot as i've seen other things throughout the year and this is one that is in its home window uh so you can watch it at your leisure if you haven't seen it yet up next my top five list is a more recent title uh that we reviewed in the show and that is the favorite Mm. This is the uh, third English language film by Yorgos Lanthimos after The Lobster and the Killing of a Sacred Deer. Uh, this is um, the film that, if you guys recall, uh, that I reviewed on the show mere minutes before Rebecca herself was going to go and see it. Uh, and she did make it. And, uh, and, uh, and she will chime in in the course of this review. I think we talked about maybe a little bit on the show. Mm-hmm. I, I can't remember. Last maybe. week, maybe. Maybe. Uh, so this is a story that I feel like I was bound to love uh, no matter what, just because, you know, it's a female-driven uh, costume drama. Uh, and so it has those pieces that, you know, that are sort of catnip for me as a gay man. You know, and that's it, it's, it's the Bugs Bunny trap uh, <laughs> <laughs> really that I'll fall for 10 times out of 10. And um, But I think that what's, you know, remarkable about it is that despite the... Um, sort of the surface level optics of okay it's a story starring a-list actresses emma stone and rachel weiss um in like a historical costume drama about you know real life events and people and so it has all those things that could very easily be a snooze uh but what we have here instead uh is a you know it's a it's a yorgos lanthimos movie Mm. Uh, you know, we have a story that has an extremely uh, perverse sense of humor, uh, a, a just masterfully dark deadpan tone. Uh, we have a story that is unexpectedly queer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have uh, we have a story that is much more psychologically intense and uh, and probing than one might expect from the uh, sort of somewhat frothy surface uh, spectacle. We also have a showcase uh, for uh, Nicholas Holt, I think, <laughs> as our guest Ashley De La Torre was uh, was talking about last week. Uh, this is, uh, and I think I, I saw something from there's some email newsletter I'm on from these this group called Them, which is like a mm-hmm. queer cultural critique newsletter, and uh, they had an essay in there about how they're like the men in the favorite are absolutely ridiculous, and that's the point. Um, from telling <laughs> yeah. a story from like a from like you know, sort of queering a female historical perspective um, to be like well yeah this is the way that the men in this story should be depicted mm. uh, we have yeah we have um, the story that gives three of the best actresses uh, that are available to us today uh, three really terrific roles uh, this is possibly the best Emma Stone's ever been uh, this is Rachel Weiss at her best this is Olivia Coleman who is the most chameleonic of the three, um, just giving us unforgettable work. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and yeah, and we have a story here that gives us, it gives us some campy humor. It gives us some sincere emotional pathos. Uh, it, uh, and it gives us a haunting finish uh, that, that makes you feel like, okay, this isn't just like a, a campy good time. Like this is, these are human beings and, um, and there are, are deep set uh, emotional consequences and psychological consequences for the actions that we watch unfold, as well as the actions that set the scene for what we see in this story. I have a lot of homework to do. Um, I have a lot of movies to see before we start getting into our 2019 uh, season. But one one assignment I'm giving myself is to see this movie again in the next week, uh, as well as The Lobster. Um, I just I, in in the feet in the conversations I've had about this movie with, with folks is that I, I think people who uh, love The Lobster and kind of were expecting the next one um, felt a little bit differently than people who either hadn't seen it or didn't think it was the funniest movie of all time. Hmm. So, uh, and maybe you're kind of an outlier in that, um, in, in loving both. I just I just was so surprised at the way I had so many emotions, uh, how sad I found the movie, which isn't to say that's a bad thing, right? That's wonderful, like, to, to feel so sad. Um, the, the fact that this movie has that range already built in is, is wonderful. Um, I just was a little shook about it, and I need to recalibrate and see it again. Um, which I'm excited to do. I'm excited to see it again without the kind of like baggage that I think I brought to it um, because it is an amazing. It's first of all, it's beautiful. Uh, the the person who is uh, definitely the best we have at, in this in this time of um, directing and uh, showing luxurious animals. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I, uh, I guess I don't for me. I yeah, I had no issue reconciling this being the work of the lobsters filmmaker you know to me it felt like the lobster and it felt more like consistent i think i said this in the review and i stand by it that it feels kind of like if the lobster had been more consistent mm. the entire running time mm-hmm. um as opposed to when it kind of makes this very enormous shift halfway through when the setting goes from in, within the facility to in the woods outside mm-hmm. the facility um and uh so yeah i mean and i still think the favorite the favorite has some some major laugh out loud moments um but it does also have a much more maybe it's just that it's more recognizably human Mm. um you know the characters and the lobster and the killing of a sacred deer are um are kind of heightened and not caricaturish at all um but they're sort of they're characters from a satire Mm. they're like satirical characters they're written for satirical purposes Mm -hmm. um whereas queen anne um in this film has a very real broken heart mm. and uh, when we learn more about the trauma that she's experienced that, have, that has made her such a just a, a tattered fragile shell of a woman it's hard hitting and mm. olivia coleman hits at home um and also the love that rachel vice's character has for her yeah and the way that we see it become basically a very real love between two women that that you know is not a flawless you know like uh you know textbook perfect relationship but a genuine decades tested relationship and we see become a pawn for a scheming young woman uh looking to find a more comfortable position for herself in the world and that's hard to see that unfold yeah i think i think that's a really good point where the lobster is uh, is you're more disconnected you can step back and you know like oh humanity like they you know there are these things about the characters in in the lobster that you know, are very relatable and highlight the flaws uh, that we have. You don't get as invested in them because they don't feel like real people as much as they do here, which is why that that same sort of like um, 
mirror of of of, hu- of humanity is just a little bit more um yeah heartbreaking yeah definitely yeah that's a very good point very good point thank you mm-hmm. <laughs> uh so yeah that's the favorite that is the movie i think that's the only movie that i saw after toronto this year that actually made my list mm. Uh, and boy, oh boy, was I glad to see it when I saw it because I was getting very, I was getting to feel in a very bad way about the movies that came out this year. Uh, moving on, my last two films on this list are both movies I did see at Toronto and have loved since then. Uh, number four on my list is The Hate You Give. Mm. Uh, this is this is my widows on this list. This is the movie that for me has been shut out of awards consideration where I'm just like, what? the Mm. fuck um i genuinely don't understand how this movie has just fallen by the wayside um and i don't know if it's because it's too activist i don't know if it's because it's too like kind of young adult Mm. feeling in some of the optics uh i don't know if it just didn't have a good campaign i don't know if it's because there's not really a big star to hang it all on Mm. Um, but either way, this was, you know, this was my number one movie at TIFF this year. And, uh, and, uh, and so of course I have to include it on this list. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, we've had a lot of movies about, uh, about race in 2018 and a lot of movies in particular about police brutality and the shootings of unarmed black and brown people, uh, by law enforcement officials. Uh, to me, and I am a white man, but to me, the hate you give is the most honest mm. uh, depiction of uh, of the current racial climate in America. Uh, it is the most honest. It is the most hard hitting. It is the most incisive, insightful. Uh, it has the most to um, to teach white America uh, about what's really happening. Uh, to the point where uh, I know it's not a movie that all people of color are rushing to see um, precisely because it is so uh, yeah kind of brutal mm. um, and unaffected like I think we mentioned this to um, to Ashley I think off the air when she was first here and she was like oh I'm not going to see that and I was like why and and she was like I don't need to see that mm-hmm. and I'm just like oh okay um, get that that makes sense uh so you know so we have here um an adaptation of a YA novel uh directed by George Tillman Jr. Uh it's a story of a of a teenage girl named Star uh played by Amanda Stenberg in what I continue to contend is the number one bar none greatest performance of any mm, this year. So good. Period. Uh Star is a is a black teenage girl who uh on the outskirts of Atlanta uh, Star has uh, has grown up uh, in uh, the black part of town uh, with her parents and her siblings, and uh, and due to uh, the violent situation at her local public school, her parents had had several uh, had some time ago put her into a private school that is predominantly white affluent kids, and as such, Star uh, has been thrust into a position where she has to code switch every day where she has to present a different version of herself uh, to sort of be able to be acceptable to the white students that she is at school with and to not be viewed by them uh, in a in a stereotypical way. And, uh, and so she has to try harder and fight harder than the rest of them and then watch as they sort of casually appropriate her culture 
and look to her for approval. And, um, and so we see just the movie better than anything else that's ever been done, I think, um, actually depicts that in a way that's like realistic and relatable. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, this is what it's like. Um, and I think that's the power of telling a story where, because, you know, we've seen a lot of progress in a lot of um, films and TV shows in terms of a, a diverse supporting cast. Um, and yet nine times out of 10, our protagonist is still white. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is just, um, this is a lasting um, sort of, you know, piece of uh, important art that shows the value of actually having your protagonist be a person of color mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and all the different insights that you get through actually having it be told through their lens as opposed to having them be like the best friend who maybe has one monologue where they're right. like, well, you don't know what it's like for me. Um, and then they just go back to the background. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think I just, I heard maybe Jessica Williams once referred to that as like black wallpaper. Mm. Uh, so, uh, and star is not that star is a protagonist. And so already in that alone, in that story, it's very gripping and really impactful and very crucial, um, for stories that we have not had told that we need to have told. Then things take a very tragic turn. She witnesses, um, the police shooting of her childhood best friend, Khalil. And, um, she is the lone eyewitness for this shooting. And, uh, and she is thrust into this horrible crucible uh, where she feels pressure and intimidation um, from all sides, from uh, from the police, from uh, from the local uh, sort of gang, from uh, the sense of not being able to talk about it with her white school friends or her white boyfriend, um, you know, not wanting to disappoint her family. And, um, you know, and what we have here, I think it's a really similar story to First Reformed in a lot of ways, um, but again, not in... Um, you know, in a more just like in in support the girls through the lens of a of a of a black woman, uh, we have the story of someone in a way being radicalized. Mm. Uh, Star um, tries in the beginning to be apolitical. She wants to stay out of it. Uh, she wants to have nothing to do with it. She is fine with this compromise that she's making um, to go along to get along at this white school. And, um, and then as she goes through the process of, of coping with what she witnesses and what that means for her and for her world, she can no longer stand by and be silent um, and, uh, and, and choke down this idea of, um, of her own subjugation. And, uh, and I think the way, that, the way that a movie that is essentially a YA story can have such an intense political emotional impact mm. i've never seen another another thing like it mm-hmm. um and uh we have you know great performances from a supporting cast that includes as i mentioned earlier regina hall mm-hmm. uh russell hornsby is fantastic as her father uh we have uh, common uh there's 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 a mm. lot of think of that scene with common where they're talking about mm. uh, who plays he plays a police officer her uncle yeah. they have a really great exchange that shakes everyone up yeah uh, so, I mean, I think that, you know, and this is a movie, if you guys remember from our review of it, I do think it has a major problems, um, with its, with its big, um, climax, uh, that to me undoes some of the power, um, because I think that what makes the movie so good up until that point is the way that it is able to just tell the truth, mm-hmm. um, about, uh, about race in America in a way that I haven't seen done in other films. 
and um, to illustrate it in ways that it kind of has that YA ability to tell a story that through telling it in a more simple way makes it more impactful. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it has an incredibly contrived, ridiculous finale um, that messes things up a little bit. A little bit. Uh, but not enough for me to take this out of this list for me. Um, this is, and I also don't want to make it sound like this is a chore to watch um, because mm. it is not. Like, it's a really emotionally gripping ride. Like, if what you look for, if you're like me, <laughs> and what you're looking for in a movie is a movie to that will grab you by your emotions and take you on an emotional journey, um, but not in like a hacky, um, you know, try hard, overly sentimental way. I think this movie earns its emotions, mm-hmm. and um, and uh, and the, I, I will continue to stand for it um, because I think I got a raw deal, and uh, so I, of course, am going to include it on this list. I remember seeing the trailer for this movie a couple of times uh, before it came out, and I, I was kind of bummed because the sort of the big. Uh, the big conflict that happens where her friend gets shot is shown in the trailer, and I was like, "Oh, that 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 seems counterintuitive. Like, I don't I don't know why they would do that. That that that's a bummer." Um, but still, kind of, you know, I still really wanted to see this movie, and I wanted to see it succeed. And there's so much more to it than that. And I think this movie is very clever. and And I hope this doesn't sound like an insult, but I think it is could really be used as a, as an incredible educational tool. Mm-hmm. I think that the way that you know, your vehicle is this character who is in this, you know, is very carefully balancing two different worlds. And, you know, so, you know, I took I recently took an unbiasing class at work or like an unbiasing workshop. Mm. And I feel like this movie would have done a really great job of illustrating some of the examples that you see there about like what microaggressions are and how, you know, there isn't an even playing field for people in the world. And, and you see that at the beginning in the school that she's in. And she's, you know, she seems to like have it all. Um, but but when a conflict arises that, you know, either wouldn't happen to other people at her school or would be, you know, wouldn't have all the repercussions to other people, um, that's when things start to fall apart. And you see all the, the little things she's doing constantly to be where she is and have people respect her and not judge her and to be to, to be looked at a certain way. Um, in, in both parts of her life, um, back at home and in school. And just seeing how people react to her, ha- no longer having that control that she has over her life and the way she's perceived because of this outside incident, um, just just shows you how precarious it is and, and how, how much bullshit it is for people to all you know, think that you can just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do something and that you know the playing field is equal for anyone. And this does it in a way, I, I think, because it does have, you know, like we said before, like it has that young adult um, label that it's able to be a little bit more um, illustrative in the way it shows you something. But it still doesn't treat the audience, you know, uh, like young adults. It, mm. it doesn't in a very, it, it speaks to people, it doesn't speak down. But it also, you know, by looking at a teenager, you, you have a little bit more empathy, I think, than you would if, if you were seeing... Um, uh, an adult kind of kind of going through it in in, um, in a less relatable way. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, this movie is fantastic. It's heartbreaking. Um, it's difficult, and it you know I mean I I found things that I related to in it. I think that like when you're in and uh, you have the ability to pass sometimes is um, something that isn't a minority. You you forget how much that's not in your control, and you forget how people can take that away from you, and um, how much work you're doing to kind of hide, you know, hide that. Hmm. 
um yeah so great great pick i really applaud this pick yeah uh this is, uh, and also worth pointing out that the screenwriter of this film was Audrey Wells, who sadly passed away just days before its release. Mm. Um, she adapted the screenplay from the best-selling YA novel, and this is um, a wonderful legacy for her to have. Uh, and I hope if you didn't uh, see this movie before, that you might be inclined to give it a chance and see what we're talking about. Uh, moving on to my fifth and final film on my top five list of 2018, a movie that we just reviewed last week, mm. and that is Barry Jenkins' If Beale Street Could Talk. Uh, this is just the work of one of our preeminent directors. You know, Barry mm. Jenkins has made it very clear now in, um, in just three films uh, you know, only you know two. One of which was relatively uh, small when released, which was his first *Medicine for Melancholy*. Then going into *Moonlight*, which of course was a game changer for all time, uh, and now going from that into this film and the first ever uh, adaptation of a James Baldwin novel to film. Uh, the you know a, a film that Barry was working on um, prior to *Moonlight* coming out. Uh, but still all the same, had to work on with that looming over him that this would be his follow-up to this, the biggest underdog victory in Oscar history. Um, and, you know, and what he's given us here is just art. It's just beautiful, gorgeous poetry um, that is no less um, hard-hitting uh, in its indictment of racial injustice in America and uh, and the sort of I read something about, I read somebody address how this is sort of about how for people of color, how impossible it is to separate the personal from the political. Mm. Um, uh, because in theory, this shouldn't have been a political story because it's just a story of young love. It is a story of Tish and Fani, um, childhood friends who fall in love and are, you know, in this relationship and, and expecting a child. Um, and, um, and, you know, meet with at least great uh you know celebration and acceptance from at least one of their families and certainly enough that they should be able to just get by and start a family and um and then we see because of the politicized nature of uh of doing anything while black in america uh we see uh how that is wildly uh thrown away and um how you know it's complicated and blocked uh from happening and um you know, and, uh, and Barry Jenkins is able to depict this uh, in a way that is, uh, you know, that feels again. It has it has it has his it has his poetry to it. It has his elegance to it. Um, and uh, because there's, you know, some have suggested that we might get, you know, could be getting to a point with films where we're getting to a saturation point with stories about about uh, racial injustice and in particular about you know like you know law enforcement coming against people of color in uh and um you know impressing them and really who where where's that coming from uh you know i think it was coming out of there was a some thing piece coming out of tiff i think whenever like hate you give and widows and this all played and you know all have um you know all have scenes in which i mean two of them have scenes in which a cop shoots an unarmed uh black man uh and beale street has um beale street being the other one 
uh, is about you know a black man who's unfairly targeted by a, an evil white cop uh, for mm. a crime he didn't commit, and then is you know put in jail and separated from his family. We're not at a saturation point for opioid addiction dramas, <laughs> right? Uh, well, there was just two, <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah. So and of course these movies are reflecting the real world. Uh, so if it were to stop happening in the real world, sure. then maybe we'd have fewer movies about it. Um, but uh, but as it stands, and this is a movie that, uh, that is adapted, according to our guest Ashley last week, very faithfully from James Baldwin's novel, which was written decades ago. So this is not a hot take on, right. uh, on <laughs> this is not a hot take on like current trends. This is, you know, this, if anything, the fact that it's so relevant speaks to mm. uh, just the history and longevity, uh, sad longevity, uh, the, the, and the unkillable enduring nature of racism in America mm. uh, and the different forms that it takes and the core of it being the same. But but what's beautiful about this, though, is that it doesn't focus on that. You know, the white racist cop in this movie is very much a minor player, despite his impact looming large. Mm. This focuses on love. This focuses on black love. This focuses on these two people and their their just adoring gazes at each other. And um, and I think it just it you know, like what we keep talking about, we have characters that are beautifully written. We have wonderful dialogue. We have writing that uh, that resonates, and um, you know, it's. It, I think I mentioned in the review last week. It almost feels like a bit of a Romeo and Juliet story in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but by no means, even though it has that kind of familiar sort of tragic romance framework to it, um, I still felt like in 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 Barry Jenkins' hands uh, that I was watching a new story. It didn't feel like, oh, I've seen this a million times. Mm, mm-hmm. Just because the visual feel that he brings to these things is just so entirely his own. And uh, with the Wong Kar Wai influence, it keeps being pointed out and, mm, and, and all yeah. and all the rest of it. So, um, yeah, Feel Street Could Talk is, is really incredible. I hope that, um, I think this is another one that I think we, we spoke at length in our review of it that we're very worried about Regina King getting overlooked for Best Supporting Actress at <laughs> the Oscars. Hopefully that won't happen. Um, and, um, I'd love to see it get other recognition as well. But, um, but yeah, and this is another one where even though like hate you give, this is a story about racial injustice. Um, it is by no means a chore, uh, to, to watch. Um, it is, it is a film that is just filled with such sensuality and, um, and, 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 um, yeah, poetry. Yeah. The racial injustice here is, it is just a story of, of, of our world. Like a, it, I feel like the um, the alternative would to was is to make a fantasy, right? Like, right. Uh, if you don't want that to be part of the story, then change society. Um, this is a story of yeah of love um, existing, and and this is another story of of women trying to do everything they can to to help their um, to help support their family and each other and. Um, we see what happens when uh, you know the system is working against so many different groups of people, and 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 what they have to do to try to to, to try to survive and uh, to try to let love grow, and and it does, and it's beautiful, and the it just if you love love <laughs> as a Pisces, <laughs> if you love love, you'll love this movie. Um, it's it's gorgeous. Um, if you could talk is uh, in theaters just now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so please go see it. It's playing near you. Uh, speaking of racial fantasies, <laughs> my pick 
for the most disappointing movie of 2018 is Green Book. So this is a film that we did not review on the show. Um, Not because we chose not to. I think it just didn't come together. Um, And uh, and then I, I since saw it. And this is a movie that I had kind of... I wouldn't say I didn't. Ha- I didn't have my my knives out against it, but coming out of TIFF, it was like it was a movie that came into TIFF with like no real buzz, and then as it started to be seen, a lot of people were talking about it, and uh, and so I was like, okay, I'm 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 intrigued, I guess. But you know, reading the description, so this is a story that is um sort of nominally a true story uh, that is about it takes place in the sixties. And uh, it is about a um, an Italian guy from the Bronx, um, played by Viggo Mortensen, uh, who is this kind of you know this no good Nick racist, who is hired to be the personal to be the chauffeur uh, for jazz musician Dr. Don Shirley, um, as he embarks on a tour uh, that includes many stops in the South. Um, the title Green Book um, comes from a real publication. Uh, from the from that time that basically is an outline uh, it's a guide to safe spaces for people of color in uh, in Jim Crow areas mm. and uh, and so and this is um, you know the first thing that uh, shakes our, our doofus protagonist like whoa 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 <laughs> what are you saying here what those what those other places aren't safe for you what I, I don't understand what's going on here oh boy this is more than I thought it was uh, so that was painful. <laughs> that was painful. Uh, well, get ready because there's more coming. Oh, great. Uh, so, uh, so, uh, yeah. So then, uh, so we have this sort of unlikely odd couple friendship story unfold between. I think his name is literally Tony. Uh, <laughs> between Tony and Doctor Shirley, Tony the Lip, I'm pretty sure is what he's known oh, as boy. in this film. Uh, and uh, in which you know, in which Doctor Shirley. Um, edifies and educates uncouth Tony uh, by showing him how to write nicer love letters to his poor wife, oh, played boy. by Linda Cardellini, uh, and um, and you know just gives him just the benefit of getting to listen to Doctor Shirley's beautiful piano playing, and you know begins to just become a more refined man of the world, you know more of a Renaissance man, uh, and in turn. Uh, because Dr. Shirley needs to be benefiting from uh, from Tony as well. Tony teaches Dr. Shirley how to live a little. Hey, buddy, what's the big deal? Uh, You're doing like a Sophia <laughs> from Golden Girls type <laughs> Italian thing. Is this because I said the other day that you're the Sophia? Yes. <laughs> now you're lashing out. I am. Uh, you're like, you're no, you're no Dorothy. You're <laughs> Sophia. I'm Dorothy. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So we have a scene in which Tony the Lip uh, forces Dr. Shirley to eat fried chicken. Oh, um, dear God. Yeah. Uh, which, and Dr. Shirley is like, no, dear. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, no, I wouldn't possibly. And Tony's like, hey, it's fried chicken. It's good. What's the problem? <laughs> um, he's like, oh, I refuse. Uh, there's scenes where Tony the Lip is like, Oh, you know who's real good? Aretha Franklin. And Dr. Shirley is like, oh, I don't know her. This is not the way that Mahershala Ali reads his lines. Yeah, um, this is really, you're doing, you're really going for it. But uh, but that's that's the tone of the writing, the way Dr. Shirley's written. It's a testament to Mahershala Ali's brilliance as an actor that he still gives one of the year's best performances as Dr. Shirley, um, despite the writing. Uh, but uh, so yeah, so and we're the me- Maggie Smith accent. No, okay. so we're, so we're meant to believe that Dr. <laughs> Shirley has never eaten fried chicken has, and has never heard of Aretha Franklin, 
um, and uh, in the 60s. And uh, so basically, it suggests that Dr. Shirley had much to learn uh, from Tony the Lip as well. Um, And, you know, we have Tony the Lip coming to Dr. Shirley's rescue in a variety of scenarios in which Dr. Shirley foolishly puts himself in harm's way in the South. And, you know, Tony the Lip to the rescue. Uh, Like, Dr. Shirley, you guys stop doing that. Stop going in them white bars. So it is uh, it is even without the additional context I'll give momentarily. It struck me as just thoroughly hollow, false uh, and. just unearned, undeserved. Mm. It just felt like a fantasy of racial concilia- racial reconciliation mm. mm-hmm. to reassure white audiences and to say, like, look how far we've come. Like, this is uh, just by setting it in the '60s, right? Um, you know, it's sort of being like, well, look at all, look at you know, look how things were back then, and and you know, aren't we glad the time has passed? Uh, so, and uh, it's a story that's entirely about you know a white man being rehabilitated. Uh, you know, by exposure to a black man. Uh, and uh, But we're also meant to cheer Tony on um, because even though we see that he has some unexamined racist impulses and prejudices, he's a good guy. And, you know, so he's going to go in there and he's going to save Dr. Shirley from any variety of situations it gets himself into. Uh, and uh, so that felt bogus and bankrupt to me uh, while watching it. Then uh, it has since come out so I already knew that one of the screenwriters of the story is the son of Tony the Lip. So, like, literally, it's like a fa- it's a son telling his father, his deceased father's story. So first and foremost, this is a love letter to this this man, to Tony the Lip, from his son. Dr. Shirley is incidental. This mm-hmm. is about how my father, who was already a good guy, became a great guy. Oh, wow. Uh, and, uh, then it comes out that, uh, Mahershala was led to believe that there was no one from Dr. Shirley's family who could have, um, contributed in any way to, um, to creating this picture of him because he was estranged from his family and there's no one to talk to. Uh, it has since come out that, uh, there were a number of people from his family that did exist. Um, they just were not consulted. They were not brought in in any way. They were not given a seat at the table. Um, they refute and dispute nearly every single incident um, as it is uh, portrayed in the Oof. film. Uh, they, uh, you know, they are horrified um, and they are offended that the memory of this um, of this family member of theirs uh, has been sort of sort of bastardized into a tool through which to show how um, you know how this how this uh, this Rebecca is showing me a picture of the uh, son of Nick Vallelonga, who is the son of Tony the Lip. Oh, it looks like a Family Guy uh, yeah. interpretation of Italian Americans. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah. So basically, like, they didn't want. It feels like Nick Vallelonga did not want the interference that comes with um, facts. So, uh, wow. and and he's made it clear that um, he's like, well, he's you know defensive about it, and he's like. You know, he's like, listen, these are oh, the... Don't do the, impressions of real people. These are the stories. Well, Tony the Lip is a real person. Uh, but he's like, these are the stories that my father told. And, you know, so like, and they never changed. So, and they must be true. Um, <laughs> which is like, are you even a human being if you think that's how human stories work? <laughs> like, especially from that generation. Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. Like, like, we're talking about a man who was in his 40s in the 60s. <laughs> like this is you know it's he was basically like greatest generation like oh, this yeah. this is this is this is a generation that told some tall tales 
Um, <laughs> and uh, so I think it just it, it it's almost embarrassing for this Nick Bellawanga. That his he, other movies are really something else. What else has he done? Oh, he's in, was involved in Coyote Ugly. Ah, well, there we go. <laughs> Little Black Book, FDR American Badass. Oh no. Yeah. Huh. Um, well, Little Black Book was Brittany Murphy, I believe. Yeah, it was. Hmm. Um. Anyway, go on. Yeah. So. Uh. So yeah. So. I. So what I. My instinct. I feel like so my instinct while watching the film that it was you know false that it was inauthentic uh that it was fabricated I feel has since been completely vindicated. Um, by the words of Dr. Shirley's surviving family and um, and basically by the revelation that this is just a son's mash note to his like deceased father's tall tales um, and uh, so I his think his father it's... was actually Tony Lip was in The Sopranos that's true yeah he was also yeah Tony the Lip had um, a, it's just a Tony Lip well I think they called him Tony the Lip in the movie but yeah okay. so gotcha. Tony... but he yeah Tony Lip um yeah had a had a part in the sopranos as well and he was in uh donnie brasco yeah and in goodfellas yeah so he he took his his tall tales and uh, yeah he was like a well-known uh figure i think in um in yeah in the italian american community around new york and new jersey mm-hmm. uh so because of tall tales because <laughs> <laughs> you know he knew how to how to how to how to spin a thread mm-hmm. and uh and he did that uh all the way to the bank and now even posthumously uh is well positioned to have so more than so, you know. So never mind the hate you give. Never mind widows. Green Book is a story about race this year that is poised to win Oscars. Wow, that's fucked up. And that's what's unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if this was just like a feel-good spring release, then I would probably still hate it. Um, but I wouldn't hate it anywhere near as much as I do, given that it is a shoe-in Best Picture nominee. Um, Fuck. it is considered a fairly solid lock for a Best Director nomination for Peter Farrelly. This is the first dramatic film from Peter Farrelly, one half of the Farrelly brothers. No. Yes. Uh, That's upsetting. And uh, considered a lock for a nomination for Viggo Mortensen for Best Actor, despite, to me, this just being a broad caricature. Uh, Mahershal, as I mentioned, is brilliant and deserves a nomination, um, as reluctant as I am to give any acknowledgement to this film whatsoever. Uh, And, uh, yeah, so it is uh, shitty, and, uh, (laughs) and I hate it. And uh, <laughs> and I know that there's probably some of you out there listening who have seen it and liked it and um, you your know, monsters it, and your monsters. <laughs> no, like I get why I get why it is a nice feel good movie, but I don't think we deserve we don't deserve to have a feel good movie about race. Period. We don't we don't get to feel good about that. Yeah, fair. Um, and uh, in this movie, and if there is a way to tell a feel good story about race, this movie does not know how to tell it, and it has not earned it, and it's dishonest. And I am fully against it. Wow. I'm also really upset that The Happy Timers is a shoe-in for Best Picture. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we are being trolled by the Academy this year. I think we are. But, you know, that's how you know that you're, you know, if you're not upsetting people with your picks, you're not doing the right job. You're not doing it. So I guess we piss off the Academy. So kudos us. Uh, Look at the good we've done. I haven't seen this one. I'm not going to. Um, I have too many things to catch up on. I mean, I want you to see it just so you can join me in my rage. Okay, maybe I will. Okay. Uh, but after I watch The Lobster and The Favorite. That's fair. Fair. Um, so I don't want to necessarily end on that note. <laughs> um, although it's the, the ending we deserve. But Jason, what is there anything in 2019 that you're looking forward to um, particularly? Film-wise or yes. whatever? whatever. Uh, Greta Gerwig's Little Women adaptation. Ooh. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like, I haven't even talked about this, 
Um, but like this has been such a thoroughly underwhelming year in film. Mm. Like I do love the movies that we've talked about today, but it was like, I don't know how many of these would have shown up if compared to last year's batch Mm. last year, we had so many amazing movies and, uh, and it was just an embarrassment of riches. It was so hard to narrow it down. And, uh, you know, and, you know, we had like, and not all of them that you love because you did not love Florida Project, um, but uh, <laughs> which I still blame on your viewing experience. But I, if you, we had, you know, we had that, we had Lady Bird, we had three billboards, mm. we had Disaster Artist, we had I, Tanya, uh, we had uh, uh, Shape of Water. Uh, there, it was so many amazing movies. And I knew coming out of TIFF this year, because this is the first time that I went, that I came back and I didn't have like a top two. I was like, mm-hmm. here are the ones that I liked, but like, there's not, you know, which was like, hate you give and if you'll speak at talk. But I wasn't like, oh, it's for sure La La Land and Moonlight. You know, it wasn't like in previous years where it's like, okay, these are like the all quadrant front runners that mm-hmm. have it all um, that are going to be like the front of the race for the next four or five months. It just didn't happen this year. And there are some that are still doing that, like Star is Born and Green Book um, that came out of TIFF that I just don't think are that good. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, so yeah, I just feel like this has been a really underwhelming year in film. And uh, and that is a bummer. But that what reminded me of that was thinking about Greta Gerwig doing Little Women. <laughs> because like the more that I think about Lady Bird, the more I just just bask in its perfection. And, um, and so, yeah, so I think her doing Little Women is going to be absolutely amazing. I am super, super looking forward to that. And I hope she doesn't fuck it up. Uh, how about you? <laughs> Um, I feel like there are a lot of movies I'm scared of in 2019. <laughs> uh, I'm scared to watch uh, The Lion King. Mm. Very excited, very scared. Um, yeah, I'm scared that I will accidentally uh, like see any of Dumbo. Mm. Um, I feel like there's just a lot out there that could mm. uh, crush me. And you have uh, a lot of emotional fears. What you're saying, a lot of your tear ducts are scared. They're very uh, scared that you'll that they'll be just laid waste to. I don't know if you know anything about it yet. Um, to maybe uh, set me set me set my expectations correct but i'm kind of excited for the what men want movie with rashi p henson <laughs> oh yeah no i'm very excited for that right i mean i don't think it's gonna be great damn it i hope it's good <laughs> i mean i think it's gonna be a lot of fun mm-hmm. uh but um you know but yeah i'm not like expecting it to be like a masterpiece but... i hope it's not too backwards i hope it ends up they have yeah. get it, get she it right. has not had great luck with movies no, um, she was in that what, that gangster Pr- movie. Proud Mary. Oh, yeah, Proud which Mary. Which should have been fun, but it was not fun. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I hope this turns the tide for Taraji in movies because she has not had a decent one since, like, Benjamin Button. I, this movie has a real opportunity. Um, it's just if they just, you know, employ some of the learnings from blockers, like, yes. you don't have to do a lot to keep it to keep it uh, relevant and fun and I, I hope it's a, I hope it's great I love her I feel like she's gonna be great in comedy uh, in, a, in a comedy starring role same and, I mean you know it was a different time in a different place but I like what women want <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first guys no. Rebecca loves Mel Gibson uh, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well. It's just because you're a real hunt head. <laughs> you know me. <laughs> That's what they call us, the people who follow Helen Hunt around. <laughs> um, yeah, but also also Lion King. Also Lion King. Also Lion King. Please I don't mean, be terrible. Billy Eichner and Beyonce in the same movie. Had the two main bees. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is it. Um, if you disagree with any of our picks, please be sure to let Jason know. <laughs> yes. Um, and thank you all. I mean, without you guys, then we would have no reason to do this. Uh, so thank you for listening. Thank you for your feedback. We really value it. We value all of you. 
happy new year to you all uh we look forward to continuing to give you reviews uh throughout 2019 thank you so much bye guys bye binging on movies with rebecca and jason you made it to the end that's amazing there goes the binge. binge